Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 for our study this morning. When I was growing up, uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was playing sports. And to me, the best part of school every day was recess because we got to play a pickup game of football. And at the little school that I went to, we didn't have a field or grass or anything like that. We had the parking lot. And so we would play our pickup games of football in the parking lot. I also have an older brother who's 22 months older than me. And then I have a younger sister who's 10 years younger. So my brother would be out there with me at recess. We would get into this pickup game. And on this particular day, there was one kid that was a little bit older than me that decided he was going to take some cheap shots and, and trip me and those kind of things. And, you know, went through that and just worked through that. And then we got into the drinking fountain after this recess in this football game. And I can remember, it's vivid, you know, it's right in my mind, this hallway and this drinking fountain. And here's the guy that was picking on me and he's getting his head down to get a drinking fountain. And here comes my older brother and he just takes this kid's head and slams it up against the wall. And then he says, you don't ever treat my brother like that again. Because my brother had a policy that he could beat up on me, but nobody else could. And I know this is hard for you to imagine, but my older brother's a lot stronger than me. He always has been. You know, he had these big, broad shoulders, and well, I don't. So that day, after him intervening, I walked a little bit taller and a little bit stronger because of his help, because of his intervention. And I hope this morning, as we study Hebrews chapter 7, that you'll walk a little taller when you leave today because of Jesus, your high priest. That's the title of our message this morning, our high priest, the one that's intervening in our lives. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you're our high priest. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? Or would you just remove distractions and really give us clarity as we look at this section of scripture and application? In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus greater than. The author of the book of Hebrews and ultimately the Holy Spirit chooses to teach us by contrast. And so what he does is he says, Jesus is greater than the angels. I'm going to show you that as we go through this. And then Jesus is greater than Moses and contrasts Jesus with Moses. And we're left with these strong conclusions that yes, indeed, Jesus is greater than. One of the claims that the book of Hebrews makes is that Jesus is greater than the priests of the Old Testament, that he is our ultimate high priest. Now, why is this such a big deal to the original readers of the book of Hebrews? We've always got to ask, who's the first ones that that read this book? Who was it written to? And they were Jewish Christians. They were Jews that had gotten saved, and they were struggling with going back under the law. They were struggling with, I want to relate to this earthly high priest instead of the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. It's a little bit hard for us to relate because we've never had a high priest. We never experienced the Levitical system. Most of us are Gentile Christians, Gentile believers. So what was the role of the high priest? What did they do? Is they would represent the people to God. They would go before God and intercede on behalf of the people. But also, they would represent God to the people. Not perfectly, 
but they would be a representation of God to the people. The priests wore a breastplate that was designed and instructed by the Lord, and there was each name of the tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. They were to have God's people upon their heart. And each priest throughout the Old Testament ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ, who perfectly represents the Father to us, who perfectly bears us upon his heart. As we get into this text this morning, we're going to be introduced once again to this man named Melchizedek. We've talked about him a little bit before. He's a priest in the Old Testament and how Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if I can encourage you to stay with me, okay? Stay with me for about 25, 30 minutes because we're going to go through a lot of detail on how Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek and you're going to be tempted, I'm going to tell you now, you're going to be tempted to hit the snooze button. So don't hit the snooze button. And we're going to get to the end of the chapter. And the end of the chapter is really going to ramp up. That's when we're going to hit the accelerator. And we're going to see what it means for Jesus to be our high priest in a real practical way. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. So this goes back to the book of Genesis we find Abraham rescuing his nephew, Lot. Lot was living in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Four kings came in and had five victories over five city states, taking captives. One of their captors that they took captive was Lot and his family. Abraham decides to go rescue Lot. This has to be one of the greatest military victories in all of history because Abraham has 318 servants, which is a lot, but he takes his 318 and goes up against these four kings and their armies and he wins. It's a supernatural victory that God gives to Abraham. So now Abraham's going home with the spoil and he meets this man, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. Salem was the ancient name for Jerusalem. And it's noted that he is the priest of the Most High God. Now understand, Abraham is the father of Israel. So Israel's not been established. There's no people, there's no land, there's no kings, there's no law. This is the very beginnings. And we find that Melchizedek is a worshiper of the Most High God. He has got a relationship with the Most High God. And he blesses Abraham. In verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So Abraham is so moved by this meeting of Melchizedek that he gives a tenth of the spoil. He gives a tithe. He's been blessed by the Lord. He recognizes it. And so he then gives a tenth over to Melchizedek. Now, this understanding biblically of tithing can be a hard one for people to understand. And sometimes I'll meet people that say, well, I don't really believe in tithing. I don't believe in giving 10% to God because we only find it in the law. But here we find that Abraham's tithing before the law was ever given. And then in the New Testament, we find that God tells us to be a cheerful giver, which means he doesn't want us to give with a bad attitude. He doesn't want us to give begrudgingly. If that's the case, then God would say, hey, j just keep it. I'm, no, I'm not broke. I don't want a, a gift that's given begrudgingly. He wants to give cheerfully, and he wants us to give purposed in our own hearts. So he'll lead us all differently on how to give. But it's very true that God does want us to give. 
If you have kids, you know why. Do you have your kids give? Do you teach your kids to give? Yes, because it's a way of raising their character. If a child never learns to share, if a child never learns to give, they become extremely selfish. And God's the same way. He's not broke. He's not saying, wow, if you don't tithe, my my work's gonna suffer. He's saying, this is a way for you to grow in your character, to rid yourself of selfishness and greed. It's been said of a Christian that the last thing for God to reach in our lives is usually our wallet. (laughs) We tend to hold that kind of tightly. But our wallet, our treasures, reflects our priorities. If you just look at your budget and where you spend your money, it reflects your priorities. And so saying to the Lord, I'm gonna give those first fruits unto the Lord. And then you may be saying, oh, I just picked the wrong Sunday to come. This is all churches ever talk about. They just talk about money and they just want our money. That's not us. If you've come here for any period of time, we don't take a public offering. You might've noticed that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but we have boxes in the foyer. It's available on the website because it's between you and the Lord. We, we don't want that to be a stumbling block for you. But as we go through the scriptures, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, we talk about it as it is in the scriptures. And so Abraham, he gives this tithe to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, his name is king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then king of Salem, which means king of peace. Isn't that an awesome title, king of righteousness and king of peace? It ultimately points to who? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteous one who brings peace. Melchizedek is the only one in the Old Testament that is both king and priest. When Israel was established, if you were the king, you could not be the priest and vice versa. And as Jesus came, died and rose again, he is the king and he is the priest. He is the ultimate righteous one. He's the king of peace. Continuing to describe Melchizedek, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So as you're reading Genesis, in this little snippet, Melchizedek just comes on the scene, blesses Abraham, receives this tithe, goes off the scene, we don't hear anything more about him, till Psalms 110, that we'll study in just a moment. No record of his mom, no record of his dad, beginning of days or end of life. None of that's recorded. When he was born, when he died, and all of this points to who? The Son of God. And points to the fact that Jesus is that priest continually. Now there's a little bit of discussion here. And there's differing views. Some people see Melchizedek as a Christophanes, which is Christ coming onto the pages of the Old Testament. We see this in a few other places as the angel of the Lord. And then others say, no, this isn't Christ coming in human flesh, coming onto the pages of of the Old Testament, this is a man, Melchizedek, who is a type and foreshadows Jesus Christ. Now, I lean to the second because here in verse three, it says, like the Son of God, that Melchizedek is like the, the Son of God. Also, we'll read that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. Seems like God gave us Melchizedek to ultimately set up this separate line of priests that Jesus would come through the order of, the the likeness of Melchizedek and not through Aaron and through Levi. We go on into verse four. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarchs Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So Melchizedek must have been a great man that Abraham would tithe and give a tenth of, 
of the spoils. And it's very important that he did tithe to Melchizedek because it shows that Melchizedek is greater or superior to Aaron and Levi. In verse five, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So the Levites, they would receive tithes from God's people for God's work. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. So Melchizedek receives the tithe from Abraham. So in meaning, in essence, then all of the descendants of Abraham also tithe to Melchizedek, including the tribe of Levi. Now here's the point in verse seven. Now behold, now beyond, excuse me, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better, by the greater. Now is this true? If you're the one receiving the blessing, just by the fact that you're receiving the blessing, you're lesser than the one who is giving the blessing. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. This is a big deal to Jews. This is helping them intellectually understand why Jesus could be their high priest. Because there would be a real mental block if you go to a Jew and say, Jesus is your high priest. They'd say, no, he's not. Because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the descendant of Aaron. Every priest that they ever had was from the tribe of Levi. And here's Jesus from the tribe of Judah. So this is why Hebrews 7 exists to show, look, Jesus is the high priest and he didn't come through Aaron, he came through Melchizedek and Melchizedek is greater than Aaron and Levi because Aaron and Levi tithed to Melchizedek through Abraham. I told you not to hit the snooze button. You still with me? You following me? You clear as mud about this point? Verse eight. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he... Here, mortal men receives tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithe, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of, the, of his father when Melchizedek met him. So it's an allegory, it's so to speak, that through Abraham, all of Israel tithed to Melchizedek. And verse 11, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under, it, for under it the people receive the law. What further need was there that any other priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Makes sense, doesn't it? If Aaron and Levi and that priesthood was perfect, why would there have to be another priest? It's showing us that salvation doesn't come through the Levitical system. It doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through Aaron and Levi. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. So when the priesthood changed, it was Aaron and Levi through the law. Now it's through Jesus and we relate to God in a different way. Prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, the way to have a relationship with God was through the law and through this Levitical system, this sacrifice for sin. But when Jesus came, it changed. It changed from law to grace. Aren't you glad for that change? I'm, I'm, I'm glad, thankful. Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man 
has officiated at the altar. So now we're speaking of Jesus. He's from another tribe, and no one from the tribe of Judah has ever been a priest. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. That's Christ's lineage. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this lineage fulfills his righthood to be the king because he's from the line of David, fulfilling that promise to David. And being of the order of Melchizedek gives him the right to be priest, king and priest. In verse 15, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there rises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. I love this. Church, I love this. Jesus didn't come through the law. He didn't come preaching rules and regulations. He came as the resurrection and the life. He came through endless life, coming to give eternal life through the sacrifice of himself. What do you preach? What do I preach? I hope I don't preach rules and regulations. I hope I'm not going out to people and giving them a bunch of rules, saying if you do this perfectly then you'll be saved. Then you'll be the child of God. I hope I'm coming to them with you're a sinner just like me. Christ died for you. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. We need to turn from our sin, repent from our sin and believe in whoever calls upon the name of the Lord to save. Jesus is endless life. So what's the place of the law? Is there there any importance in, in the law? Yes, because the law shows us our need for Christ. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't see the necessity for Jesus Christ to die. We'd think, oh, I can do it on my own. Just give me some rules and and I can follow them. So God gave us the rules so we quickly see our need for a savior. So we go on into verse 17. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a quote from Psalms 110. It's the father speaking about the son. So there's nothing about Melchizedek from Genesis till Psalms 110. And God, in his knowledge, in his foreknowledge, he's crafted all of this. Melchizedek, Psalms 110, Jesus coming from the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever. He doesn't come and go. In verse 18, for on the other hand, there's an annulling of the former commandments because of its weakness and unprofitableness. So when the priesthood changed... We now have a relationship with the Lord through grace and the old covenant is annulled because it's weak and it's unprofitable. And we come into this better covenant, this new covenant of grace that God promised, that he prophesied and he predicted. In the Old Testament, as you related to the Lord under the law, it was an if-then relationship. What I mean by that is if you obey, you get blessing. And it's laid out if you read the law. If you do this, then you receive this. But if you don't do this, you get cursing. Disobedience leads to cursing. Obedience leads to blessing to the point where God had two mountains in Israel and said, this is the mount of blessing. Go read the blessings. This is the mount of cursing. Go read the cursings. A very vivid image in your mind. What mountain do you want to to live on? But unfortunately, the law doesn't provide the power for obedience. Haven't we experienced that to be true? It's weak. It can't perfect us. It's, it's un, unprofitable. So the nation of Israel sinned over and over and over again. We sin over and over and over again. So what's the new covenant? The new covenant is not do, 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 but done, done, done. 
Jesus hangs upon the cross and he cries out, it is finished. What's he declaring? It's paid in full. I've paid the price for you to where now forgiveness comes into our lives fully and completely as we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Do we do good works? Do we worship? Is there adoration? Absolutely. But it's out of response to his grace, not out of responsibility. This is a huge transformation. This is a huge change that Jesus, our high priest, has brought us into. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. I think that you've experienced this in your own life. You know that rules, regulations, law, it doesn't make anything perfect. But on the other hand, there's a better hope. It's our high priest who allows us to draw near to God. In the Old Testament, one day, the high priest, one day, was able to go into God's presence. One man, one day a year. But through Jesus Christ, the veil's been torn in two. There's open access to where we can draw near to God. When was the last time you drew near to the Lord that you took God up on this offer? Not when was the last time you went to church or the last time you read your Bible, but the last time you you drew near to him. This is what Christ has provided for us, that we can be in relationship with him and draw near to him. We had a night of worship on Wednesday, prayer and worship, and Chance was sharing and he did a great job out of John 4 with the woman on the well. How that God desires those and actually seeks after those that worship him in spirit and in truth. And the truth is the studying of God's word. But the spirit is our response to that truth. It's giving ourselves fully to God. It's giving our love, our love to God. I really saw the void of this when Amber and I, last week, we, we went on a cruise. We got back last Saturday about a week ago. And I spend a lot of time with believers which I love. I spend a lot of time with all of you. And so I I am in kind of a a little bit of a bubble. And I know believers and have some good friendships and relationship with believers, but I'm not around, you know, 2,500 unbelievers very often. So on this cruise boat, you got a whole bunch of people that don't know Christ. There were some people that that know Christ, but a whole bunch of other people that, that didn't know Christ. And just talking to people and spending time with them and conversations and, and watching them, I just saw a whole bunch of people in darkness that were desperately longing for fulfillment. Thinking this, this one week on this boat is gonna, gonna satisfy me. I'm finally getting a break and looking to relationships. There were all kinds of relationships on this boat. Some people married, a whole lot of people not married. Everything you can think of underneath the title of relationships, it was on this boat. A lot of people looking to relationships to try to fulfill them, looking to pleasure to try, try to fulfill them. And I just wanted to scream out over the whole boat, man, Jesus loves you, he died for you, draw near to him, he's the only way that you're gonna experience any type of, of fulfillment. And we know that up here as believers, don't we? But we can fall into the same trap. You know, if I, if I just get here, if I just do this, if I just do that, then, then I'm going to be fulfilled. It reminded me a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Song of Solomon, or excuse me, Solomon, he said that it was like chasing the wind. How do you ever catch the wind? It's like a dog chasing their tail. Our dog, Lady Lou, she loves to chase her tail, and she never gets it. She just keeps going around in circles. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened in her life. 
And do we do that as God's children? We're just chasing our tail. We're looking for fulfillment. And the whole time, it's provided in a relationship with the Lord. Part of this new covenant is its relationship, not rules. I think we tend to want to gravitate towards rules. People are really comfortable when you preach rules. If I come up here and say, this is what you got to do, and be real heavy on it, and scream and yell, and you go, wow, that's a great sermon. I got my can kick. I'm coming back next week for some more. Yeah, Eric was really on fire this week. Woo, yeah. And then I come in and say, you know what you really need? Draw near to the Lord. Like, oh, I've heard that before. Don't give me that Jesus stuff. That's so simple. I, I, need, I need a system. Because really, rules are easier than relationship. I don't have to have a relationship with you if I keep rules. I don't really have a relationship with police officers when I keep, keep rules. I have some friends that are police officers, but that's outside of their role as a police. I don't have to even have any relationship. But relationship's much more complex. It's much more real. It's the giving, giving of, of yourself. And that's what God desires. He came and gave himself for us so that we would give ourselves to him, draw near to the Lord, take advantage of what the God has provided for us. Verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without oath, for they have become priests without oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and not, will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, showing how Jesus is greater than the priests of the Old Testament because they became priests simply by genealogy. Not with oath, not with commitment, not with intent. It came down to one simple thing. Do you have the genes? Do you have the DNA? Are you of the tribe of Levi? Do you have the Levi genes? Then you can be a priest. (laughs) That was it. It's a real groaner. That was for free. You just gave that to you for free. There was no choice in the matter. There was no calling in the matter. If you wanted to be a doctor, if you wanted to be an athlete, if you wanted to be a teacher, you wanted to be a carpenter, you wanted to be a taxi driver, nope, you're going to be a priest. You're a Levite. This is what Levites do. You're, You're from this descendant, but it's different with Jesus as being of the order of Melchizedek. His came by oath. His came by commitment. And it was the commitment of the Father. If you notice at the end of verse 21, it says, By him who said to him, the Father speaking to the Son, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. God has given his oath. The Father has given the oath and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6 addressed this. God did not have to give an oath because his simple word can be trusted. Amen? So when he says it, we know he'll do it. But God, in his love for us, he gives us this oath that we can trust that Jesus is going to be the priest forever. So we come to verse 22, and this is where we start to hit the accelerator a little bit. Look at what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. By so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. So if you're taking notes, a few things to consider Our high priest is the guarantee of the new covenant. He's the surety of a better covenant. Guarantee. It's like the idea of putting earnest money down to buy a house. And God has put out this incredible guarantee. The best, the most sure guarantee of this better covenant that God relates to us through the blood of Jesus. Jesus, when he instituted communion, 
these symbols for us to remember his sacrifice. He said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God signs this guarantee with the blood of his son. If you ever doubt this better covenant, this new covenant, know that it's guaranteed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's say that we are going through some financial difficulty and a family member that was of means calls you up and says, look, I know you're going through some financial trouble. I'm gonna have a check in the mail. It's gonna be in your bank account electronically by the end of the day. Would you rest a little bit easier because you know they have the money and they gave the guarantee? Probably. But how much more so when God says, this is the guarantee. I gave my son for you. I died for you. I rose again. You believe in me. You have eternal life. That's a guarantee that we can count on and that we can rest in. In verse 23 Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. After Aaron, he was the first high priest, then it was his son Eliezer. And after Eliezer, then it was Phinehas. The Talmud estimates over 300 priests from the time of Aaron to the time of Jesus Christ because they die. Their mortality, their life's gonna end and there's gonna be a new priest. Not so with Jesus in verse 24 But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Our priest, our high priest, is continual and eternal. Another thing to consider. What does this all mean? Our high priest Jesus is upon his throne, seated next to his father, and it's forever. It's continual. It's not going to change. This word unchanging in the Greek, it has the idea of non-transferable. It's permanent. No one can do Christ's job as the high priest It's permanent. It's not going to change. Do you feel like your world is constantly changing? You don't know what's up, what's down, what's going to change in employment, what's going to change in relationships, what's going to change in health. This is what you know. Every day of your life, Jesus Christ will be your high priest. Throughout all of eternity, Jesus Christ will be our high priest. Leaders come and go. Pastors come and go, don't they? And churches endure the process of getting used to a new pastor. You don't have to go through that again. It's, not that, it's never going to be that way, way again. And that's why we don't follow a pastor. We follow our high priest, Jesus Christ. Pastors change. They fail. They fall away. They die. But Jesus Christ is our priest. He's the one that we look to. In verse 25, Therefore he's also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Our high priest is able to save to the uttermost, the third consideration. Billy Sunday was a baseball player. He was also a drunk, really had a problem with alcohol. Woke up many nights on the gutter. He got saved and he went around preaching the gospel. One of the things that he would save is that, share is that God saves from the guttermost because that was his life, that was his story. God literally saved him from the gutter. And what we see in this verse is it's what God has saved us from, that he's taken us out of the gutter, but it's what he also has saved us to. He saved us to the uttermost. That means complete, absolute, total, eternal salvation. You're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. From God's perspective, you're glorified already. God's confident that he's going to complete the good work that he started in you. He's the author and he's the finisher of your faith. He saves to the uttermost. 
It's encouraging for us as believers and it's motivating as well. As we look out at people that don't know Christ as our Savior, they're never beyond the love of God. They're never beyond the redemption of God and God's ability to save to the uttermost. We look at verse 26, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's your view of Christ? Do you still view Jesus on the cross? Do you still view him in the tomb? Do you view him as disconnected, disengaged? He's risen, ascended, seated next to the Father, and he's actively engaged every single day in doing what? Interceding. So our high priest is interceding for us. He's interceding for us. What does it mean to intercede? It means the action of intervening on the behalf of another. It's what my brother did for me that day after the football game. Though he didn't do it in the most Christ-like manner, he still did it. And Christ is intervening on your behalf in several different ways. One is this. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he's doing. Satan's actively engaged. He's not taking a sabbatical. And what does he do? He loves to condemn us and cause us to live in guilt and shame. Father, you know that that group at Rocky Mountain Calvary that call themselves Christians, that's on Austin Bluffs and Academy? Why do you love them? They're, They're so rotten. Did you see all the things that they did this week and the ways that they failed and goes on and on and on and then they got their cute little bumper stickers that they put on their car and they drive like the devil, you know? all these different things and just loves to accuse and accuse and accuse. And before you know it, you feel like, man, why should I ever come to church? Why should I ever read my Bible? Why should I ever draw near to the Lord? How, how could God love me? And here's Jesus interceding on our behalf saying it's paid in full. I paid for that. I got that one. I died for Eric. He's forgiven. And it's not that Jesus is dying again at the moment of sin. I don't want you to think that or misunderstand that. He's simply reminding the devil, reminding us that this has been paid for. Similar maybe to paying off student loans. That can seem like an eternal process, can't it? You're paying on those loans and you're paying on those loans and eventually you get a piece of paper from the bank that says, paid in full. Yeah, paid in full. Now what if you paid off your student loans and you get that letter from the bank And they call you up six months later and say, we notice you haven't been making any payments and you still owe some money. Say, hey, wait a second. I'm not letting you do that to me. I got the piece of paper that says this is paid in full. Let me show it to you. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. We're not even doing it for ourselves. He's doing it for us. He's intervening on our behalf. And then he also intervenes on all of the daily needs and the pressures of life. Do you have those? man, I've got those. We've all got those. And to think Jesus actually cares about those things and is lifting those needs up to the Father, it's humbling that we're loved that much by by Christ. I try to make it part of my daily habit to lift up my wife and four kids in prayer and to think of the things that they're going through and and lift that up to, to the Father. I've been married for 13 years. I know my wife well but I don't know her even a fraction of compared to the way that Jesus knows her. Jesus knows everything about her. He created her, and Jesus is lifting her up before the Father. I'm thankful to know my four kids, thankful that I've been able to be a part of their life, but I know them a fraction of compared to how the Father knows them and how Jesus knows them. 
And I was so encouraged to meditate upon this week and think about that Jesus cares about what's going on in my life. He cares about what's going on in my family and he's lifting it up before the Father. It brought me to tears. I was overwhelmed by it. And I hope this morning that you're encouraged. I know you came in with your weights. I know you came in with your burdens and your distractions and the things you went through this week and wondering what am I gonna go through next week? And Jesus knows. Maybe sometimes you feel like nobody's in my corner. Nobody cares. Nobody notices. Nobody stands with me. No one's intervening on my behalf. Not true. Jesus is intervening on your behalf. Romans 8 verse 34. This Wednesday night we're gonna be in Romans. Looking forward to it. It speaks of this intercession. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In Peter's life, Jesus interceded on his behalf. This is Luke 22. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. This was at Christ's darkest hour, Gethsemane, and he's praying for Peter. Jesus is praying for you. He ever lives to intercede for you. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us. This word fitting for us, it means truly meets our needs. Jesus, our high priest, truly meets our needs, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Only Jesus can be completely holy, but yet harmless. How do you be completely holy, but yet harmless? Undefiled, absolutely pure, separate from sinners, but yet the friend of sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Speaking of the fact of his humility, his incarnation, his death, his suffering, and then ultimately his resurrection, where now he is higher than the heavens. Verse 27, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So our high priest is the final sacrifice for sin, the final sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, every day, daily sacrifice because the people continued to sin, the priests continued to sin, but Jesus, he sacrificed once. He died once the ultimate lamb of God. And when he died once, sin was forgiven for those who believe in Christ, that come to God through Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. If Christ is the final sacrifice for your sin, why are you still trying to sacrifice for your sin? Why are you still trying to pay the debt for which Christ has already paid? It's really hard to receive forgiveness even as believers. We fail, we fall short. How could I do this? I tried so hard not to, but yet I did it again. We confess our sin to God, but we fail to receive his forgiveness. We, we fail to receive that final payment. And in essence, we go to God, I'm gonna work for this one. I'm gonna do better this time. And then once I've done better, maybe God will forgive me. That's not biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness is given completely at the finished work of Jesus Christ. We receive it completely and we respond to it out of gratitude, but we don't try to earn it or, or deserve it. I'm sure that there's some this morning where you are under so much guilt and so much condemnation and you're saying, you know, I, I've just gotta do better. And if I do better, then, then maybe God will forgive me or then maybe I'm worthy to, to receive the forgiveness. 
What does it say in our Bibles this morning? He is the final sacrifice for sin. One sacrifice, total and complete. So if he's that final sacrifice for sin, we need to receive it in gratitude and quit trying to make the sacrifice on our own. In verse 28, it's our last verse this morning. You can give out a hallelujah. You didn't know if we'd ever get there, but we're here. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came from the Father, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Every high priest had weakness, but Jesus is perfect forever as our high priest. This morning, be encouraged in your high priest. Make it personal. And consider this for yourself. He's my guarantee. He's my guarantee of the new covenant. He's continual and eternal. He doesn't change. In this changing world, he doesn't change. He saved me to the uttermost. He's interceding on my behalf. What's going on in your life? Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Jesus is the final sacrifice for my sin. Let's stand and pray together. If you would pray with me, let's go to God's throne together. Just take a few more moments and spend this time with him. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you that you're our high priest. Thank you that you love us, that you are the sacrifice for our sin. That it's final, that it's complete. We receive it afresh this morning. We're humbled that we're on your heart that you know what's going on in our lives, that you care, that you're interceding on our behalf. It's both encouraging, but it's powerful. We're thankful for that. We ask that we would leave this morning walking taller, standing stronger, because of our understanding of you being our high priest. Father, I remember the day in my life when you revealed your love to me. I'd heard of your love, but I didn't know it in my own life. God, in my heart breaks this morning for those that haven't come to you, that haven't put their faith in you, that haven't experienced that love. We would ask that you would pour out your spirit right now to reveal your love, reveal your kindness, 